From the Swoop, it's Take the Plunge, a podcast about how business owners decided to stop what they were doing and took the plunge to start their own business. We take a look at how they came to that decision and what those first crucial steps were in getting their business up and running. My name's Kieran, and I'll be your host for this episode. Here's what you can expect on today's episode. You know, we kind of felt like we really needed some help. But, you know, but we were still... I mean, like at one point, Tony actually moved in and started living in the, in the offices. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Goss, co-founder and managing director of Hospital Records Limited. Hospital Records is an independent record label in South London, primarily releasing drum and bass. The label was started in 1996 by Tony Coleman and Chris Goss and has grown in recent years to become one of the most well-known labels within UK dance music. You're very welcome, Chris. Thanks so much for coming on and joining us. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm all right. It's a pleasure to be here. Cheers. So can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing before setting up Hospital Records and kind of why did you decide to stop doing that and, and take the plunge, so to speak? Sure. Well, I um, so personally, I, I studied uh, art and design at college, and I came back to London from studying in Yorkshire. Uh, couldn't get a job naturally. It was that was around '92, and I just started working in the Virgin Megastore on Oxford Street, which was um, uh, crushingly demoralising. Um, <laughs> but uh, but at least I was still at least I was still around music, you know. Yeah. What I used to do was basically every lunchtime I would just escape Oxford Street and go into Soho because um, particularly early 90s, I mean, Soho was really vibrant for basically record shops. You know, there were at one point, I think, over 60 record shops in Soho. Right. So, you know, I'd just spend my lunchtimes there and um, I'd always go to a store called Soul Jazz, which is my favourite, selling, you know, old rare groove jazz music, hip-hop, house music. And in the end, I ended up getting like a part-time job there and I left the, the megastore finally after about a year and started doing a couple of days a week at Soul Jazz. And through that, you know, I've, I kind of got more immersed in that community, you know, yeah. um, of, of uh, music lovers, record buyers, DJs, radio hosts, you name it. It was a, you know, it was a, a really wonderful place to work. And... Um, on the side, I was doing a little bit of graphic design. You know, I was just doing like, I was designing flyers and business cards and I met a promoter who promoted at Ronnie Scott's. And so um, okay. I, I used to do, I used to do some of the um, adverts for them. Like back in the day when Time Out, Time Out magazine was like London's internet, you know, in the early nineties. And so uh, it was full of music listings and I used to do a lot of the adverts for places like Ronnie's. Through that, I ended up meeting, you know, a few of the bands that were playing there. One of the bands was a band called Is It? Um, and that was uh, a band sort of fronted by Tony. So I got to know Tony, and um, in around mid or late 93, um, he, um, he asked me to do some artwork for him, and then he ended up, have, when I delivered that, he said, uh, well, do you want to come and run this record label that I have? And I, <laughs> you know, and I said, uh, no. I said, no, I'm, I'm going to be a very famous graphic designer, so cheers for that, but... Um, I woke up the next morning thinking, what am I doing? Like, no one's going to ever ask me ever again to run a record label. So, um, so I rang him back and, and we started working together. So we worked, and we worked on that. that. That label was called Tongue and Groove Records and was very much like a, an acid jazz record label, you know, yeah. um, which was, people forget, honestly, acid jazz was a huge, huge scene 
you know, London, Europe, America, Australia. And um, so we worked together on that for about two and a half years. And we had, we had about, we had about 18 months, two years that we just, we were just flying. We did a record deal in Japan. We got investment from that. We moved out of Tony's bedroom and took on a, a rep, <laughs> we took on a rental in West London where we had like a basement studio and a, and a, and a, a street level office space. And, um, yeah. That was like 94, we moved in there. And you know, it was really exciting and it was hard work, but yeah. it, it was great. Um, but by mid to late 95, the music scene had changed so massively that we were realizing that acid jazz music was nowhere near as hip as it had been. And so frankly, it was getting a lot harder to do what we were doing. And we were, you know, we were, we were a bit lost um, in terms of what we were doing. And um, to be honest, I actually started looking for, I, I got offered a job actually at Soul Jazz at their record label. And, yeah. I was, and I was very tempted to take it, to be honest, because it's, you know, that, that continues to be a real benchmark for me in my record collection and my, and my music taste. So, you know, we were sort of like late 95, things weren't really looking that good, but Tony convinced me that the two of us should um, have one sort of last hurrah and that we should actually try and start making music together. Um, because up until that point, I was just helping run the label and it was all about his band and the other artists we had. And so, you know, we actually spent, we spent about six months just basically messing around in our West London studio, making a whole bunch of different music. Um, we were making kind of house music and drum and bass music and breakbeat music and, you know, really enjoying ourselves, not really knowing really what we were doing. But as we sort of ended the year, got into early 96, I think we started to realise that there was some real energy around what we were managing to do together mm. and we decided that we wanted to start a new label and that is basically how hospital started you know we kind of ended up releasing our first uh, record down i think it was april of 96 and kind of what bit like it's obviously the sense of a lot of experimentation there before you decided to to get official with hospital at what point did you feel actually there's something in this we're working well together as a team was it you were getting a lot of good reception of what you were putting out there kind of what what kind of gave you the indication you go yeah we've got something here i mean i, I suppose because we because we'd already worked together for i guess two years actually almost maybe almost three years crucially i you know we both felt i think we felt confident uh, in our working relationship and we felt confident in that kind of creative relationship so I guess that was primarily the motivation to try something else. In terms of that big sort of stylistic shift, we were just chancing our arm and thinking, what's the worst that can happen? You know, what's the worst that can happen? We can do this, we can make a bunch of music, we can have a go. We've got, we've got the basics, we know, how to, we know how to release music, we know how to basically run an independent label. So that's great, we've got, all, we've got that under our belt. But why not? Like, you know, life's too short. So why not, why not take that sort of creative leap? And to be honest, you know, the first, I would say that the first sort of, about the first two and a half years of that were quite tough because we were attempting to kind of break into a market, the market of drum and bass, that yeah. felt quite resistant to newcomers. And I guess also because the music that we were making was slightly different. It was, it was a bit more left field, you know, uh, it was very musical, where in fact at that time a lot of drum and bass music was hard as nails, you know, big sort of club music. But we felt, we felt belligerently sort of confident in the, in the music that we were, we were making. But, 
you know, when you're when you're essentially sort of knocking on doors, trying to get DJs to play your 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 record, etc., trying to get noticed by magazines, all of that kind of regular stuff. As anyone would would imagine, it, it can be quite demoralising when you're not really getting anywhere. And um, was there a moment where you managed to kind of break that cycle of because you guys were effectively then new kids on the block or something a little bit different in the drum and bass scene who was it that kind of gave you more of a chance or was it a publication that decided to run something um well it was was just gradual breaking people down we tend to always reference one song in particular like our our seventh our seventh release was a tremendously self-indulgent record i mean it's like (laughs) you know it's it's 11 minutes long and and in some ways it was about as you know it was about as stubborn a record and as sort of obtuse a record as we could deliver. It was quite out of step with a lot of other things that were going on around us. But we, you know, we felt very passionate about it and we were, uh, we were lucky that there was certainly one, you know, we had one positive shot in the arm that while, while we were still trying to really get established, um, out of nowhere, two Japanese guys turned up at our door and we were like, hello. Um, <laughs> and they said... Uh, you know, we're, you from, we're, we're from Sony and we've come here from Tokyo and we'd like to sign you. And we went, what? <laughs> and, you know, these, these lovely guys came into our studio and sat down and, you know, we, we had cups of tea and had a chat and we signed a deal with Sony in Japan because, you know, the, the Japanese have such an incredible appetite and knowledge for culture and they were on it. You know, they, they'd come over and they signed up you know, people like Ronnie Size and I think DJ Hype and Goldie, and they also signed up us for their for their Japanese label. So that you know that that did give us you know crucially it gave us a, a little bit of money, but it also gave us some confidence, you know, and, nice. and some belief. And as a result, we actually you know in late '98 um, we went on tour in Japan. We went and DJed in a bunch of clubs, which was absolutely amazing. Um, and I remember very well being in a club in Tokyo, a club called Yellow, and um, Tony and I, we had this track, Song in the Key of Knife, on a dat, because um, that's how long ago it was, and being, being Tokyo, of course, the amazing thing is the DJ booth was incredible, so they had a dat there, and, and we played this track, and, and we said to each other, right, let's play this now, if this doesn't work tonight, maybe we're just going to have to call it a day. And it went, you know... It went down really well. It sounded great on a beautiful sound system. You know, we were probably overcome by an extra tequila or two. And, you know, so we, but, but we kind of came back to London feeling quite invigorated. And that, that was the first record that then Fabio picked up and played on Radio 1. And a few other DJs picked up. And it was that first moment when we felt maybe we have a chance here. You know, maybe nice. maybe this community will actually bring us in. Well, I suppose with the investment on the Sony side of things, did that allow you to bring more people into hospital or was it just give you guys more time to focus on producing more records? Kind of what, what kind of pathway did, yeah, did th- you kind of take there? I think I think at that point, you know, that that financial input was really just something that we could thankfully put into our overheads. I mean, yeah. the, you know, in, in the first couple of years, to be honest, certainly the first sort of three or four years both of us were kind of holding down other other freelance jobs we didn't have full-time jobs but you know tony was a was able to deliver kind of production music to different companies as a freelancer i did a lot of freelance graphic design work you know for a number of record labels and a couple of record shops so you know we were both we were both kind of working constantly 
But when you're really excited by a new project, it just doesn't really matter. You know, you just do whatever mm. it takes. So I guess something like that, you know, something like that, that record deal with Sony was just, honestly, it was as much, it was as much about our kind of confidence and positivity as anything else. But, uh, but certainly, the, you know, that, I mean, and, and don't get me wrong, like the, the money wasn't huge, but, it, but it, it, it made a difference yeah. in as much as we could pay a few more bills, we could probably take on a few, maybe a couple less freelance jobs. But it was a while until, yeah, it, I mean, I think our first member of staff came in maybe around 99. Um, yeah, because that was when we released our first artist album, and you know we kind of felt like we really needed some help. But you know, but we were still. I mean, like at one point, Tony actually moved in and started living in the in the offices, and because the way the building was was that the studio was in the basement, and there was also like a, you know, there was like a funny little kind of bathroom and a little kitchen and even like a portable sauna. From when it had been a previous re- recording studio, so it was it was vaguely livable. And to his credit, you know, he moved in because he was trying to also save money. Um, so, so you know, it was it was a bit hand to mouth for a few years, but um, but I guess that the, the sort of the belief was there. And and talk me through the kind of finding or discovering the another artist on the label because you mentioned bringing in a, a member of staff in '99 to to reflect, uh, giving that support. And um, did you naturally start? talent scoping or or it was just something that happened naturally i mean yeah happily it was the latter um when we you know when we when we'd set up in the first place to be honest you know we set the label up because we didn't for a minute think that any other label would sign our music we we knew we'd need to do it ourselves we also liked the prospect of having the control over Mm. what we wanted to do in every aspect of it particularly like the visuals and the packaging and the you name it Mm. um and to be honest, yeah, it, it was it was just a it was a really pleasant surprise when people just started sending us music. You know, we hadn't been asking for it; we weren't looking for it. Mm. And one of the first people to send us music was Danny Bird, who's actually mm. who's coming in here for a meeting in about an hour. Um, and awesome. you know, and then one of the second people to send us music was High Contrast. And you know, when when you're when you're fortunate enough to get that that kind of caliber of artist and creativity inevitably you then start thinking all right well then so maybe maybe we should put out other people's music too yeah. um, because in all honesty we just set it up for ourselves you know not 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 in an arrogant way we just we just wanted to be self-sufficient how did you find that transition though from i suppose being very focused on yourselves to be like okay i need to start considering other people and how do i get their music out was that a natural transition or was it tough to well you know the thing is that of course you know with the previous label tone groove you know we had done that so we also we did we yeah, had you know we had that experience and we so i think we we had enough uh, confidence in ourselves to to build those working relationships and to know how to try and take care of and support an artist with their music and their releases i think the, sig- the significant shift for us as a pair was that up for the first three or four four years really everything was kind of based around our music and our project um which was really the the london electricity electricity project as the as the two of us and you know a lot of a lot of press and touring and just you know moving from project to project like that but as we you know we brought in emily our first member of staff and then we got to know danny and lincoln and then we just started to release a couple of singles by them that kind of chimed 
quite neatly with also a, you know a kind of a creative shift particularly for Tony and he was saying look I feel like I want to be able to move forward with this music project as a solo artist because when it came to making music there, there, there was always a huge distinction between the two of us because you know he's a singer songwriter and composer and I'm just a guy with a record collection mm. and I I would never profess to be you know a producer on my own I only ever mm. made music with Tony and it, so it seemed, it seemed quite clear to both of us that things were shifting in a positive way, but that we were going to have to embrace some, some key changes within our setup. And it just became very clear that really the obvious thing to do was that I would, I would sort of withdraw from the studio and from producing music, and I would just focus on the label, enabling Tony to focus much more on the songwriting and the music he would, you know, he continued to be a key member of the, you know, of the structural setup of the label, but was able to spend a lot more of his time just as an artist. And so then I was working with Emily, and then you know, other staff that we brought in, and you know, it was probably the, you know, the most obvious but smartest thing we ever did. And I suppose, how did you find kind of the whole going through and growing a business, so to speak, um, in terms of? getting more artists on board, trying to manage them, but also growing your own staff roster as well. How did, did you, was that something that came naturally to you? Or was there bits that were kind of more challenging than others? I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that we, we were very fortunate. We were very fortunate with the, the kind of people that seemed to sort of gravitate towards us. Hmm. Um, some of that came through, you know, being on tour and doing gigs and being backstage with other artists and meeting promoters and writers and, you know, photographers. And some of it just, you know, it's cheesy, but it was, it was, it was relatively organic. You know, people just seemed to sort of gradually kind of come through at the right kind of time. And, you know, we categorically, we had no business plan. There was no, you know, there was no sort of whiteboard with a set of targets. <laughs> there really wasn't. Okay. You don't strike me as a KPI man, Chris. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, don't even know, I don't even know what KPI is. I mean, you know, <laughs> but you know, but in all, yeah, exactly, yeah. But in, all on, in all honesty, it's um, it was it you know it was driven by by instinct and conviction in in the music because we were a record label. We are a record label, and that that is always our key focus and foundation for everything that we do. So we we just felt that if we continued to put our heart and soul into the music and the songwriting and production and then the visuals and the packaging and how we shared that that it would gradually establish itself and as i said happily people would people would come through and and then i suppose very lucky then in in some respects that you you were able to to have that attractiveness and was able to grow in that organic sense but I suppose as it was growing, was it something that you're looking at external investment to, to grow more at or was able to just naturally kind of grow at its own pace? Yeah, no, we never we never looked at external investment. We've never had any. We've never we we'd never taken out a bank loan until we took out took out a mortgage on the first building that we bought. I think we first of all, you know, because we are we're, we're two very stubborn old men and we <laughs> We militantly felt that you know this this business had to grow on the basis of the quality of the music and the music being valuable enough that people wanted to invest themselves in it. Yeah. So for me, external investment essentially, first of all, means compromise mm -hmm. because whilst it's tempting 
you know, and many record labels would be saying, well, you know, we need this kind of an office space and it needs to be in that part of town and I want, you know, a named parking space. So I'll just go and ask someone else for, you know, half a million or whatever it takes to get that. We have absolutely, you know, no lack of ambition. But the issue was, was that we, want, we wanted to do it on our own terms, but we categorically knew that we had to retain control. And when, you know, it's one thing, you know, you could go to, a, go to the bank and ask for a loan, and, but then obviously you're going to pay back goodness knows how much more than you initially take out, let alone with those attendant pressures and stresses of knowing that, you know, you've got constant repayments for no matter what's happening within your business. Let alone if you actually look to another, uh, an investor or another business and say, why don't you come in and, you know, buy some shares or get, get involved? Because before you know it, you then have people sat around the table who have very different goals and very different beliefs, um, which of course are primarily the fact that they want their money back. That changes any creative business overnight. Right, so it's just focusing then on that kind of creative line though you kind of even say say now today there's a very healthy roster of artists attached to to the label all of which which are i can only imagine incredibly passionate about their music and their vision um, and obviously as a label you also want to support and, and guide them how do you manage those kind of creative conversations with with so many people whilst trying to keep the the label growing in a particular direction it's, it's challenging you know, it's challenging and, and never more so than, you know, a year and a half into a global pandemic, of course, um, yeah. which we all know is, is something that has affected everyone, no matter what they may be doing with their working day. So our, the relationships with our artists have probably actually never been more important because, you know, we're at a point now when most of them have been suffering financially, mm -hmm. I mean, significantly because particularly in my world, all of our artists' uh, performance income as DJs is a key part of their financial calendar. And it's just been wiped out. So that, you know, that, that, that's a, an enormous burden and challenge for them to, to, to take on. So, you know, we have been doing everything that we can to reach out to and support them in whichever ways uh, we think we can. And of course, also, they're all, they're all quite different people. Some of them have families. Some of them are in their early 20s, living at home with their parents. You know, some of them live on the other side of the world with a partner. Some now have day jobs for the first time in maybe 15 years. Some still work full-time on music. It's, it's a very, very broad uh, range of experience. But we've, we've continued to just do everything that we can, particularly within the sort of senior leadership team, like myself, the other, you know, the other directors, the senior management particularly any of the staff that are involved in the A&R team who are often the ones that have more regular contact with the artists around yeah. their music making. So the, the most important thing to me is that, is that we're in touch, is that we're yeah. in communication and that they know that we are always, we're always on the end of the phone, you know, a Zoom screen, whatever it might be. We've also set up a hardship fund, which is actually for our artists and our staff, just so that they also know that if, you know, God forbid, if they were to get into real, real problems, you know, that we can set up um, some kind of a, basically a grant to them if they need it. Yeah. That, you know, just, it's not really means tested, it's just kind of common sense. But in any case, that's something that we've also set up just for a bit of reassurance. Because, you know, when you've got, you know, when you've got artists who might have two small kids, um, yeah. as is the case for a couple of my artists, you know, and they've got a lot of bills to pay. And I mean, you know, it, it's stressful enough having a child without all of these kind of pressures. But having said all of that, 
the, one of the main things for, for me is to continue, within that dialogue with the artist, is to continue to say to them, whatever you do, don't lose sight of just how powerful and essential and important your music is because you have monthly listeners, Patreon fans, hospital fans, kids that go to your gigs, wear your t-shirt, you name it, and they're waiting for your new release. So whilst I understand, you know, the, the, the challenges or maybe feeling like, well, is there much point in putting out dance music when there are no gigs? I firmly believe there's never been more, more reason to release music during a pandemic when so many people are finding life really hard. Yeah. And we certainly had a few artists early on last year who were saying, oh, just, I just don't see the point. But all of them are absolutely writing, producing and creating. Some of them, in fact, some of them have actually been more creative during the pandemic than they've ever been. Yeah, because I was going to ask, I was curious to ask you about that. Like, uh, obviously, as you alluded to, some of them might have been stylized at the start, but maybe with true fans going, look, Jesus, I need to hear something. Do they, they kind of get back into what they were doing and, and produce them some some great stuff has, has, has that happened by the sense of things that... yeah we, I mean the fact is that you know our, our release schedule is the busiest it's ever been so that's one indicator I mean right. you know we have we have 27 exclusively signed artists um, which, which is probably about the biggest the roster has been but I know I know for a fact that we are creating and delivering um, consistently great music week in week out that said I do know that for, certainly for let's say some of our more dance floor, club focused artists. It is tricky when, as an artist, you know, you don't have that simple testing ground of yeah. the club system and the crowd that we've all grown up with. When so often our artists, very naturally, when they're working on music, they will, they will road test things in a club environment or at a festival. And so that's really hard. It's hard to not have that. And so I've not had that for so long. So I, I think it's fair to say that, for, you know, maybe for some of them, maybe who are more in that kind of a space, they've maybe taken their time a little more. They've been a bit, bit more cautious about when they bring new music through, but they are still releasing. Whereas maybe for some of the artists, you know, we have a very stylistically, very broad range of uh, people that sit in this BPM space. You know, we have other artists, you know, who make quite minimal stripped back kind of music, a lot of singer-songwriters, a lot of vocal tunes. We're always focused on album projects, which which are maybe a different kind of experience to the sort of traditional club banger. So, but yeah, as I say, the most important thing for me is that we can continue to do our job as a label and a publisher, which is primarily to continue to nurture, support, and, you know, celebrate exciting new music. Hmm. And uh, well, hopefully the, in the next kind of couple of weeks, months, they'll get more opportunities, like... Um obviously not a music example, but I had the opportunity to get into uh, Captain Grand uh, a couple of weeks back uh, where some of the comedians were getting to row test for the first time. And Russell Howard was supposed to come on for 20 minutes. She couldn't leave the stage. She was on for, for two and a half hours. She was just getting so much energy and being able to, to test the stuff out there. And obviously as a crowd, you're like, Jesus, yeah, don't, don't leave the stage. This, this is awesome. But it was just so nice to see someone so happy to get to to do what it is that they want to do uh, and obviously there's some kind of mainstream festivals kind of wilderness and things like that coming back on but there's also more and more festivals coming in in august and september and please god they'll they'll, they'll, they'll run so i'd imagine is there are a few of your artists kind of getting those opportunities to get out there and, and, and test their their music again they are they are just 
you know they're all they're all just kind of chomping at the bit waiting i mean yeah. we, we we all know that the you know the the government approved date now is the 19th of this month and yeah. so plenty of the artists you know have have gigs club gigs outdoor gigs boat parties anything you know yeah. probably from that week forward um, so I, you know, I fully expect that for a number of them, you know, lots of them have, have been playing those kind of sit down shows just yep. to, just to be out and about to hear music on a system and just to have some level of, you know, social connection. But when, when you're a drum and bass producer, you know, people sitting down nah. at, at a picnic table is not really the one. Um, so I've no, I've no doubt that, you know, to be honest, I, I imagine for a lot of them, it will probably be quite emotional. Because it's it's been a long time coming, um, and I think that for most of them the shows will really start to roll out from the end of July. I mean, sadly, some festivals have gone. You know that yeah. they, they won't be happening. You know, we have our own festival that we are crossing fingers for, which is the uh, weekend in the woods in September. Yeah. So that you know, and as a, so as a company and as a as a as a team, you know, we're we're as you can imagine, we're very sort of focused on that and just very mm. very hopeful that we can get to that point because that that will feel like a major kind of Everest climbing achievement. Yeah, amazing. And obviously live music and the reaction, the connection with bands and producing music is the pinnacle, but I'm really curious just to hear about your experience from all the different mediums that has kind of occurred from your earliest days, obviously getting things out in records, CD, Napster, Apple Store, Spotify, Vivo, SoundCloud, everything, Patreon as as you touched on. How have you found kind of deciphering kind of which mediums have been good for your artists for your type of music and kind of what role have they played in the last year and a half well i mean it's you know sometimes it's a little bit breathtaking you know just considering all the different platforms um these days you know when we started i mean really when we started you know i mean there was barely any sort of personal use internet you know when we started you know we had a fax machine um, (laughs) which was the size of a fridge and, you know, we used to, you know, I used to do promo, but I, I had to sit in front of an Amstrad Hi-Fi with a cassette deck to make tapes of the record that we'd had pressed. And I used to send out, you know, 150 cassettes to journalists and magazines. And, you know, and I mean, it, in many ways it was awful, but there was a, there was a certain pace to that that I, that I miss because things just took their natural course. You know, we find ourselves now, as, as you said, you know, you look at, the, the myriad of different platforms where artists can be. I think one, you know, one positive is, is, is that the drum and bass community, the drum and bass music scene has been very sort of uh, present online from the very early days. And it was actually way ahead of so many other sorts of musical communities because, you know, we were back in the mid nineties, you know, we had forums that were huge. Um, and the forums and using AOL instant messenger was the kind of, they were, they were the go-to tools for our musical community. And, you know, they would just be chatting online and then using a messenger to talk to other producers, to share files. I mean, you know, it took quite a long time because yeah. it, it was 1G or whatever. The, I don't know, it, was, it wasn't even a G at all. But so the drum and bass community has, has kind of been on it in that respect and very quick to, I think, to use whatever software was available to us. You know, we're now at this point where, uh, is there too much? I mean, the biggest challenge I think right now with where we are in 
2021 with the digital landscape that we're familiar with is that the the sheer open floodgates of mm. content i mean I, th I think the current stat is that spotify uploads 60,000 new tracks a day you know which is a which is a horrific stat because no <laughs> yeah. one i no really one, want to know your opinion on that yeah no, no one can possibly guarantee the quality of those tracks nah. it's just stuff and so cutting through that white noise is getting harder and harder and also to an extent i feel that increasingly trying to actually convince maybe particularly young artists or actually maybe all of them from the youngest to the oldest that there is a reason why record labels exist because the danger is is that now in this UGC universe which we inhabit like where of course everyone's a star everyone's a broadcaster everyone's an artist everyone's a record label and there's this notion that well all you've got to do is just finish the track on you know your mum's iPad <laughs> you know upload it to the internet and you're a superstar you've got a record label but the the filter that is absolutely necessary to edit and frankly censor some of the content that should never make it is being lost because somehow yeah. we we now have this you know we now have this belief that well well I, well, I can do it because uh, yeah. everyone else does it and that's just not good enough and I accept that there will continually be more and more artists that are that quite firmly believe that they don't need a label they can do it themselves because they have the tools and the understanding the technology and yes they do but what they miss out on is the relationships yeah. and, the, and the dialogue and the challenge of is that your best piece of work or actually yeah. do you think that should be uploaded at all or do you not think you should go back in on that or maybe actually you've got something better or maybe you could wait six months and do you feel like I know this could be a completely stupid statement here, but do you feel younger artists are receptive to that kind of kind of critique, or is it more challenging with younger artists to to do the kind of feedback loop with them? It's 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 fairly varied. I think I think it, it it's tempting to to consider that the younger artists just simply don't listen because this is literally what they're growing up with. I mean, my oldest daughter's twenty one, so you know I've. I've kind of seen it through my girls in, 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 in literally what they have grown up with and what they what maybe their perceptions of the cultural world around them. So yes, in some ways, you know, the artists that are coming through age sort of 17, 19, 21 probably may, may assume that actually all of this stuff is easy and that there's no need for the, you know, all these people in this building to get in the way of what they do. Although sometimes, in fact, actually the, the younger artists are so actually, that, that they're actually focused and ambitious that this is everything that they aspire to so I, I, I think it's important to not you know me personally to not sort of just assume that young people are difficult because young people yeah. are great I mean I've got this whole bunch of young people just out there working hard and I learn so much from from all of them so it's just a lot of the time it's just someone's mindset and you can never really tell but the catalogue and the company really is based on is purely based on positive working relationships with artists mm. and staff and partners. And when it comes to the artists, really, it's ultimately down to sitting down with an artist and saying, I need you to have faith in me and have faith in us. Mm. And I need to be able to reciprocate that and I need to have faith in you and what you're doing. Now, the fact that we're having this conversation means that I already have that because I wouldn't be wasting my time if I didn't think that you had the creative abilities that make it 
essential for you to then potentially come into this company. But I do need you as an artist to have faith in us, in our experience and uh, understanding and commitment that we will do exactly the right job for you. That doesn't fit for everyone. Yeah. And I think in some ways, really, it, it probably fits less and less, which is a sadness to me, but it doesn't make me think that in any way that we're not relevant. I mean, in so many ways, we're more relevant now than we've ever been because of that overwhelming landscape of tat that is out there <laughs> of just thousands and thousands and thousands of pointless tunes. But is that probably kind of alluding there? Is that going to start to work more in your advantage? Um, obviously, things will open up and hopefully everything will happen in the woods will run it gives you the opportunity to really showcase quality so to speak so that as 80,000 tracks get uploaded onto Spotify in two months time that you can probably stand out more and more as a, a differentiator to to the tat so to speak and I suppose is that where I suppose the key thing for hospital is going forward is to be that kind of beacon of quality in in the kind of section of music that you guys are so passionate about. Yeah, for sure. And I, th and I, think, I think one distinction is that um, I will always appreciate that I can't expect people to make that kind of value judgment that you described purely based on the style of music because everyone has different tastes. So there will always mm -hmm. be people that just think that the music we put out isn't any good or is crap or is naff or that it just doesn't move them. But that's just personal taste. Yep. That doesn't have anything to do with everything else around it and, and what we are building here and how we value and nurture careers because that's what it's about. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the amount of effort that we put into the artist's relationships. But also not just that, you know, the actual product that we create and deliver, how we manage and administer our catalogue you know, how we run our royalty accounting, you know, all of those kind of things. They are essential factors in what we're building here and the reputation of the company. You know, things is, you know, we always said in the early days, one of the most important things that we could possibly focus on is the royalty accounting. Because funnily enough, drum and bass didn't have the best reputation for people getting paid. You go back to the early mid nineties, late nineties, but frankly still now, you know, there is still not enough of an understanding of or a commitment to detailed, um, substantial royalty accounting and what that means for an artist's career. Because to do that actually costs a lot of money. Yeah. When, when you, if, you, if you try and imagine like, you know, 15, 20 years ago, the royalty accounting was a bit complicated, but it was, it was manageable. But you imagine what it's like now when you've got we've got a 25 year old catalogue so something How'd like you do it? well so we now work with we work with uh, um, a company called Curve oh I know Curve yeah 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 they just did a big raise didn't they and like you know I mean I remember when Curve actually kind of set up and they you know when they were trialling their system probably sort of four or five years ago and they were coming to us saying look we'd like you guys to beta test it and at that point we were working with a different system and we said well look the, the nice thing about that was was that we'd been in a long relationship with a previous uh, a previous platform but so we were able to say to Curve look here's some of the things that we've been asking for and we haven't got yet so we want you to put these things into your system and within reason they did um, not absolutely everything but to their word you know they, they listened they took on board a lot of our feedback and so it finally got to the point when they actually launched and as you might imagine you know after putting quite a bit of effort in you know we got a nice deal for when they launched 
Um, and it's a great system. Crucially, it's a system that, you know, I mean, it still costs a fair bit of money annually for the company. But w when you think about the millions and millions of lines of data that we get from our catalogue across multiple global streaming platforms, and that's just the streaming platforms. You know, think about the physical, think about... The th but how do you, how, I'm just fascinated, like how do you, obviously the streaming stuff nearly, obviously there's huge volumes of data there, but I can kind of get my head around how you can get access to that and understand it. But how do you get out into the physical side of things and, and track that? I mean, you know, it just, in, I mean, in the, way, in the ways that, that, that we always have done, you know, on the basis of, so we have... You know, we have our own well-established online store which we operate here so you know obviously we you know we, we manage all of um, all of the back end and the accounting of that ourselves there are then um, there's our we work with proper distribution who are our physical distributor here in London and then there are their various partners that they work with around the world and that's to account for you know the vinyl and CD audio products through the store we obviously have all sorts of other things very large merchandise range and you know, obviously, you've also got the whole event side of the company. But it's worth, I suppose, you know, the the reason it's worth going into is that record labels can always third party this. They don't have to do it themselves. I think that's a mistake. If as a yeah. record label you have ambition, if you have ambition, really your your ambition should be to understand every aspect of the business. Because whenever you third party it, and let's be honest, usually you third party the really, really boring stuff, or in my case, yeah, yeah. I just employ staff to do the boring stuff because they understand it far better than I do and I want to do nice mm -hmm. things. But mm -hmm. if you have that ambition, surely you want to be in a position where when you sit around a table like this, you can actually look people in the eye and talk them through all the different aspects of this business rather than say, oh, can you just send an email to our whatever contractor supplier? Yeah, but I also imagine it's incredibly important given, say, the last year you talk about artists who have two kids and you've just talked to them about selling a record or selling on one stream, but you're actually no... I'm looking at this from a 360 perspective because there are different avenues that we are going to have to push at different parts of your career. And um, so it's important for us to know about them and, and you to know them. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it, I, I feel that we can only have meaningful, well-rounded conversations with our artists and our staff if there's, if there's a, a clear understanding of all of the different aspects of the business. You know, so we have, you know, we have like a quarterly director's finance meeting where we just go through absolutely everything, you know, and within that, that's the first point at which the directors can then get a clear understanding of all the various departments and how they're performing, where they might be underperforming, um, what the impact might be, how we've been, in, of course, where we've been impacted by something like COVID or where we've been impacted by other issues, how that runs through certain aspects of the business. Sometimes there are, there are nice surprises. You know, sometimes you actually kind of understand that, in fact, where you may have anticipated a real dip, maybe in music sales. In fact, there was a real dip for, and this is going back to last spring, you know, there, there was a real dip for about three weeks and then there was an upsurge and then it just, it was solid. But, but it's essential to have those regular assessments where you can actually sit down and share with each other like, oh, okay, so that's actually better than we thought. But then over here, you know, we've got, we've got a dip here and a dip here and let's assess that. Let's then sit down with the department managers and talk it through and understand it. But ultimately, all of that work then goes back to conversations with the artists so that we can really speak with, with a current understanding of what, what is happening around them and what is potentially happening to them directly. Amazing. Chris, I think I could 
probably sit here and chat to you all day. I just find this so really interesting. Um, but I'm, I'm also conscious, I remember you were saying you have to bounce at 11. So I just, this is, I, I, I could honestly listen to you all day. This is so interesting. And like I'd say, it's just been mad how much it's changed since it's between yourself and Tony. And by the sounds of things, you've never had a bigger roster. So there must be so many kind of different elements you're looking at. But I imagine people have taken making a huge difference in terms of, as you kind of alluded to there, there's, there's some areas I just need to bring in someone else to do because that's their expert. So I'd say finding the right kind of people must be pretty crucial um, over the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, the recruitment side of things, you know, has been, you know, we've been blessed in the very early days. It was just pure luck. Um, yeah. You know, our first member of staff, Emily, was in fact a woman who had been working at like a, like a DJ promo service in the mid 90s. And she'd been promoting some of our records. So we knew her, we had a relationship with her. And it was just great timing that she was looking to move on. So we offered her a job. I mean, Emily is now managing director of Brownswood Recordings for Giles Peterson. And I'm, I'm very lucky to have you know, a lot of stories like that from previous members of staff you know, yeah. who've come through and are, you know, are working at, from Brownswood to Universal to PPL, PRS, Curve. Like one of our young guys used to work with us, he now works at Curve. It's kind of yeah. ironic when he then turns up to kind of like sell us a new package. Like, <laughs> All right, Matty, yeah, chill out. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the, I mean, the, the recruitment now is very, very different. I mean, you know, we now finally, after all these years, you know, we, we finally have a, an HR partner, um, which re- realistically we should have invested in years ago. Yeah. But na- see, naively, we thought that we, we were good at that and that we could manage that ourselves. But I'm, I'm very, very grateful to Emily that she's now with us. That's Emily, our HR partner, because she brings her wealth of experience mm. from actually different industries. She's never worked in music before. She worked in publishing, she worked in oil. And so she kind of can bring some real common sense structure to the recruitment process. And it's a different way of doing it. And it's maybe a bit more laborious, but it's, you know, we've actually, we've employed four new young people in the last six weeks, which is fantastic. And, you know, and I'm very proud to still be able to actually be adding to the staff team when it's still, you know, the world around us is still pretty challenging. But they're coming in for very, very specific reasons to work on specific tasks and in specific departments. But I, you know, I recognise that whether it's recruitment or, you know, coding, subscription services, there's, there's so much to learn. You know, I mean, I've worked in music 30 years and I feel like I've, you know, I'm about sort of entry level stage one, maybe stage no. two. <laughs> because it never stops. You know, yeah. and, and, and it, it's it's fascinating and exhausting, but um, I think so long as there is so long as there is that positive desire to keep listening and learning, then then we'll yeah. be all right. Can't think of a better message to kind of finish it up on there on, on that. Like um I've just been fascinated by this this whole whole chat and um, I couldn't wish you any more luck with it and I really hope in, in the woods goes ahead and all the artists get a few bangers out there absolutely um, yeah. and, and everyone starts hitting those dance floors again so yeah thanks so much chris um, Pleasure. We, Pleasure. wish you a smashing day and thanks so much for taking the time to chat to us all right man take care